I mean, we're bombarded with anti-union propaganda daily. I like to think of the story of my maternal grandfather, who was born in poverty and who died as a member of the great American middle class. Everybody in the country feels like they're working harder than ever before, but falling farther and farther behind. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. In honest conversation about how to make capitalism work for everyone. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm Jessen Farrell, and I'm senior vice president at Civic Ventures and a former state legislator. So, Jessen, today on Pitchfork Economics, we're going to talk about wage suppression. Wage suppression and the decline of worker power. Yeah. What has happened over the last 40 years? Well, a lot of crazy things have happened. I mean, the story is pretty simple that for most of the middle of the last century, when productivity went up, wages for the typical family went up, wages for basically everybody went up. And then in the, mi in the middle uh, 1970s, neoliberalism came along and all of that began to change. And we... Uh, we uh, either stopped doing the policies that kept wages tracking with productivity and economic growth, or we instituted new, a new set of policies that decoupled wages from productivity and growth. And as a consequence, all, uh, the, the country did not stop growing. The growth rate um, essentially stayed the same, but for most families, certainly for the bottom 90% of Americans, wages essentially stagnated and um, the statistics are, are pretty astounding. Yeah, it's pretty astounding. When it, Since 1979, the bottom 90% of the American workforce has seen their pay shrink as a percentage of their total income. Yeah. And what I think is especially telling about this is it wasn't driven by apolitical market forces, right? Yeah. The weather didn't blow in. It was that there was a concerted attack on worker pay. Yeah, and worker power. And worker which is power, where, Which right. is where pay comes from. Uh, you know, definitely one of the themes of the podcast is that neo, the, the neoliberal idea is that there are these uh, immutable physics-like economic forces at play, and the market is always right, and you are paid exactly what you're worth, and if you only make seven twenty-five an hour, then that's what you that's because you deserve seven twenty-five an hour, and if a particular group of people had their wages flattened out, well, then that's because that's all they're worth. Right. And if my wages went up 10% a year, uh, but your wages only went up one-tenth of 1% 1 per year, this reflects... Uh, the the relative difference in the amount of value we're creating in the society. And that's just mostly complete nonsense. And it's nonsense. <laughs> and we know it's nonsense yeah. because if the policies that had been placed in 1979 had held constant, yeah. workers would have $1.35 trillion additional dollars in their pockets. Yeah, that's, and that's very conservative. And that's very just, conservative. Yeah, that's yeah. Just, that's just uh, the change in their labor share to say nothing of increases in corporate profits and uh, shifts in uh, wealth shares and so on and so forth. Right, not to mention changes in tax policy, et cetera. Yeah, so yeah. things and, are probably a lot more dire yeah, than that number. Yeah, and so, I mean, uh, this is why everybody is so ticked off, is that, you know, roughly speaking, if the typical family had 
been um, had fully participated in productivity growth over the last 40 years or 45 years instead of earning $59,000 a year they'd earn like $100,000 a year and that and that gap is why everybody in the country feels like they're working harder than ever before but falling farther and farther behind. Right, and going back to a point you made earlier that this issue around the pay gap and what's changed is du- a direct consequence of the erosion of worker power. Yeah. And when we, you know, when unions were at their strongest before the 60s, they had a real impact on narrowing the wage gap, particularly for male workers, but that spilled over to non-unionized work workers too. And we've seen a real sharp decline in worker power and union power since the 1970s. Yeah. And things have only gotten worse since then. Right. And so, yeah, and in the old days, although everybody wasn't in a union, only about, I think, one in three workers were, th- there was this massive spillover effect that y- union wages had a big impact on non-union wages and that helped support uh, the entirety of the middle class. Yeah. And we see this today in a place like Washington State, which still has very strong unions. Mm-hmm. We've been able to put in place strong protections for workers. And we, of course, want to see that go even stronger yeah. in certain things like the overtime threshold. Right. But there really is a tight nexus between the strength of unions and the income of non-union workers as well. Right. And, I mean, just not to brag or anything like that. But go but, ahead. <laughs> but um, we have been hard at work on um, increasing worker power in Washington State and instituting uh, policies that increase wages for working and middle class people. We've done a pretty good job at it, among the best in the country. And uh, you, if you believe the neoliberals, Washington State would be f- sliding into the ocean that Uh, All the restaurants would have closed, the companies would have moved, people would be poor, uh, the state would be in disarray. But on the contrary, things have never really gone better. And in fact, we were also tickled that U.S. News and World Report did this um, analysis that came out recently, and they called Washington State, what was it? What did they say? Number one. We are number one. They they said something even better than that, which was, Washington State is the best state. (laughs) The best state. That's right. The best state. And again, bringing it back to the topic today, it's that worker power is actually better for everybody. It is. And you see that in an economy like Washington State, which isn't to say that everything is perfect here, which isn't to say that there aren't a lot of challenges, but it could be a lot worse. Yeah, it could be a lot worse. And that's the point. Yeah, we could be Alabama or Louisiana or Or someplace where worker power has has degraded quite a bit. Right. Uh, And today on the podcast, we are joined um, by a couple of extraordinary characters. The first is uh, David Rolfe, who is a dear friend and collaborator and is, I think, uh, I think you can say just objectively, is the most successful union union organizer uh, since uh, World War II. In the modern era, for sure. He's an extraordinarily talented guy. And we'll also be joined by uh, a remarkable guy named Larry Michelle, who is, I think, probably the country's leading labor economist. He helped build an organization called the Economic Policy Institute. He's been at this for 30 years or something like that, knows more about labor policy and wage suppression than probably anybody else in the country. He's very very uh, interesting uh, and fun guy. Yeah, and the two of them, I think, together are really interesting because you have David talking about the decline, uh, how to build organizations, the decline of organizations, and of course, Larry providing all of the research and policy backup to tell the story. Yeah, should be interesting. 
We are excited to be here with David Rolf, who is the former head of SEIU 775, and he is going to talk to us today about the history of worker power in the United States and then to talk about what what is coming next. So happy to be here. Thank you. And certainly, David, as a labor leader, uh, your your life has been <laughs> essentially, uh, 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 you know, confronting power and dealing with power dynamics. And, you know, it'd be just fun to hear you reflect on that. I like to think of the story of my maternal grandfather, who was born in poverty and who died as a member of the great American middle class. Born in Appalachia, not long after the turn of the last century, uh, had nine siblings, uh, you know, no plumbing, uh, at a dollar in his pocket the day he was married. And yet somehow he went on to own a home send his kids to college. His widow never had to go on Medicaid for her nursing home care. And that wasn't because of a productivity revolution, and it wasn't because God woke up one day and decided to create the middle class. It happened because he and his coworkers joined together in a union that had enough power to force the, what was then the world's largest company, General Motors, to say yes when it wanted to say no. And that's how he got fair wages. That's how he got a pension. That's how he got a health plan. And um, my mother's generation did it again as a classroom teacher, a job that used to uh, be designed only for single women to do for a few years before they got married off, and which paid wages accordingly, uh, became a profession because workers got organized and expressed their power. Now, in the case of my grandfather's auto workers union, it was vis-a-vis a big company. In the case of the teachers who got organized largely in the 60s and 70s, it was vis-a-vis government. But what they had in common was the notion that through collective action, ordinary people could accomplish extraordinary things. Right. Oh, and David, you know, you've been one of the most successful labor organizers in the country in what I think is really interesting in an era where the labor movement has been in decline nationally. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about why things have been so different in Washington state, what your work around that has been, and again, in this broader context of what's been happening to labor more nationally. Sure. And I'll, I'll apologize if I if this sounds a little bit depressing, because in general, the fate of the labor movement in the United States is it's not heading in a great direction. In the 1950s, about a third of the workforce was covered under a union contract. Today in the private sector, it's down to 6.5%, about 10% overall, including public sector workers. Now, in Washington State and in SEIU nationally, there have been some, some different outcomes. We've seen SEIU grow nationally. We've seen the labor movement grow here in Washington State, uh, accomplish some incredible victories. But I think it's important to acknowledge that when the overall trend is towards zero, that no one heroic union or no smart labor leader is going to be able to resist those trends forever. And the, the reality is that most workers today don't have a path to power on their jobs or in the economy because they don't have an organization that's capable of acting collectively with, with them and on their behalf. Um, and that's just a feature of the 21st century landscape, one created intentionally by people wielding power against workers. So whether it was the 1947 Taft-Hartley Act that took away most of the most powerful tools unions could use, or whether it was the concerted decades-long assault on unions beginning in the 1970s, we've now seen the uh, the fruits of the right-wing's labor 
uh, come to, to bear. And that is to say, if, if unions had gone away, but we had a thriving, robust middle class and growing incomes and growing job security and longer vacations and shorter work weeks and better benefits, we could all just kind of remember unions as part of the interesting old days. But what happened is we got rid of unions and we largely got rid of the middle class. And those things happen in tandem at exactly the same time because they were causal. Yeah. Hi, this is Zach Burns, one of the producers here at Pitchfork Economics. Just wanted to interrupt here for a second. David was speaking about his father and the opportunities that being in a union afforded him. Unions in this country have vastly disappeared, but there still are some who are fighting for their rights as workers, including the employees at Delta, where thousands are trying to make their collective voices heard, thus far, unsuccessfully. I spoke to one Delta employee named Dan McCurdy. He's been fighting for years to try to get himself and his fellow employees to form a union. I first asked him why he felt he needed one. I think the reason employees at Delta want a union are to address the things that Delta doesn't address. I mean, Delta is very good about putting out uh, all these awards that they win and all the awards that us as employees win. But there's issues uh, that without union representation, we can't address. So I think that sometimes the public and these the people that, that rate these corporations, they hear what Delta is putting out. And Delta is able to get some spokes uh, people from within the company to help push their message across. But as for uh, many of us that uh, have issues with some of the work rules, with uh, the staffing levels, and just with uh, a lot of issues out there, our voice isn't necessarily heard without a union. And I think that it's a little bit unfair to the other major carriers because they're all represented by by a union. So United, American, whenever they have an issue that they like to dis- or that they need to discuss, they feel pretty confident and free to discuss those issues. And it's not necessarily so with Delta employees. What 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 employees are actually trying to unionize, Dan? Uh, we have two groups right now. I'm a part of the blowing group, and we consist of around 16,000 people, and we also have our flight attendants that are looking to organize, and we're both uh, trying to organize with the the IAM, International Association of Machinists. One thing that I saw was a flyer that was circulating uh, trying to convince employees to spend what they would pay in union dues on something else like a PlayStation or, or baseball tickets. And when I first saw it, I thought this has to be fake, but these flyers are actually real, aren't they? They, it is real. And I mean, we're bombarded with anti-union propaganda daily. There's uh, displays in our break room that have flyers such as this one. Uh, we've got TVs in our break rooms that scroll anti-union uh, messaging. We have um, our hallways were uh, also the, the anti-union campaign even flooded out into our hallways that are common areas for other airlines and Delta was pushing their anti-union propaganda there as well. And for any new hire, they go into those new hire classes and uh, they they do say that it's a voluntary meeting and that if you don't want to hear it, that you can leave. But if you're a new employee to this company, you you don't feel real confident that it's in your best interest to get up and walk out. So you listen to what they have to say and then straight off the, uh, straight out of the gate, you understand that this is a very anti-union corporation. 
But what about the 16,000 employees that are, are trying to unionize? I mean, just, just guessing, what percentage of them want to do it versus what, what percentage would rather do as Delta wants and, and just stay non-union? So the Railway Labor Act governs our union elections, and you, we have to get authorization, union authorization cards signed in order to get to an election. We've had, uh, this is information as of about, a month, maybe two months ago, but we've had 9,122 employees sign a card, which is more than the 50% required to get to an election. Our problem is that because these cards expire after one year, not all of them are valid. So there's a big game that is played uh, in terms of trying to get them all valid at the same time, and obviously Delta trying to stand in the way of us getting cards signed and having them all valid at the same time. Besides just the, the, the company kind of having propaganda and, you know, in break rooms and everything like that, uh, what else have they done to dissuade people from unionizing? Have you seen any employees be punished for speaking out in, in favor of a union? Um, well, I can tell you that Kip Hedges was, uh, he was a Delta employee and he was terminated about three years ago. And I believe that it was uh, for his union advocacy. And so he has, uh, he was pushed off. He had a lawsuit and those terms are uh, not publicly available. They don't put that out, but um, I definitely feel like his, his termination was over his union advocacy. And just on the inside, I mean, when you work for a company that's this anti-union, you know that, I mean, people come up to me all the time. I went to a MAC commission meeting one month ago and I spoke about Delta putting their anti-union propaganda up into unleased areas and that the, our Metropolitan Airport Commission should have it removed. And, and uh, people came up to me and they said, man, you're going to get fired for saying that. So there's just overall, there's definitely a fear amongst the employees that if you speak out for representation that you're putting your job on the line. And I don't want to put my job on the line. I do enjoy working for Delta. However, I also understand that we definitely need a union because I, too, fear for my job for simply speaking out for a federally protected right that I have. You know, you think about, like, women's rights uh, to vote. Uh, they didn't always have that, but it, and now they do. It's not as if they go to the polls uh, and when they vote, they're afraid of something bad happening to them. So I think that it should be the same way for us employees that want to exercise a federally protected right to unionize. There shouldn't be any fear within talking about it. And, you know, ultimately, if we when we do get to an election, uh, employees get to vote on this. So if it was true that we don't have the support to win an election, Delta has nothing to fear. So it's kind of strange that they are so bold and speak out so strongly against unionization and put that fear in there. Uh, let the employees speak. Let's let's let the outcome. You know, if it's true that there's not enough support, that would embarrass me. That would be great for the mm-hmm. company. They could use that and say, you know, these employees didn't have the support that they needed. But I'm extremely confident that when we get these cards valid and get to an election, we're going to win it. It's important for folks to recognize that the factory jobs in the 60s and 70s that created you know, stable, secure, robust, middle-class families and lives weren't because those workers were 
unusually productive. That's right. Or were uh, you know worked for firms that were unusually profitable. They those wages provided middle class lives because unions provided the mechanism to enable people to nego- folks to negotiate a fair split of the value created by that enterprise. That's right. That it was negotiation and power that generated prosper that brought prosperity, not some, you know, magical elixir of productivity or technology or anything else. Right. Now, which isn't to say that productivity isn't important and, and that increasing amounts of technology and productivity don't general, in a general way, increase human welfare. But if all of the benefits of that increase in welfare accrue to a few people and you can easily leave most people out. And that's the story of the last four years. Yeah, I mean, once again, you could look at an industry that operates globally and ask the question, how do U.S. workers fare working for the same companies, using the same machines and the same technology at production facilities in Germany or in Michigan? And the reality is that uh, an automobile worker in America makes a not much more than half of what a German automobile worker makes in total wages and benefits. And and yet there's almost no difference in the productivity of that worker, right. largely using the same manufacturing equipment uh, in, on two different continents. That's right. And as I recall, the Germans are now making almost twice as many cars as we are. That's exactly paying right. Paying twice as much, which is kind of an astonishing an astonishing thing. Yeah, and that and that that right there that is the power differential That's because right. what's true in Germany is that nearly the entire industry is covered by union contracts and what happened in the United States was that all the growth moved to the south and the west where unions were not as strong and so workers saw their bargaining power disappear uh, in the United States context whereas in most of Europe it, whatever the union membership levels are the vast majority of those economies are covered by union contracts. So when I was a little boy, uh, America had the biggest middle class in the world by per capita. Now we're number 27. Germany's number one. Yeah. So we've been talking a lot about how we've been tearing down a narrative around trickle-down economics and that the evidence is bearing that out, and yet politicians are still deeply bathed in our cultural bath of trickle-down. And it's hard to fight those next fights around things like raising the overtime threshold, which is the middle way, you know, the minimum wage for the middle class. So how do we, in a sustained, sustainable way, get to a place where worker power is being manifested in the political and cultural dialogue? Yeah, I, I think there's, it's a great question, and there's more than, probably more than one thing we could say about this. But I think it's, what, it's, it's let's start with what's evident. Right, that the decline of worker power expressed through unions has resulted in a 40-year wage collapse that's beset working and middle-class Americans. In fact, unless you're in the top 5% of income earners, you have not experienced any of the growth of our economy for the last uh, 40, 45, 50 years. Right? All of the benefits of the growing economy, of productivity growth, of GDP growth, of growth in corporate profits, have gone to the very, very, very top of the economy because workers and everyday families don't have power. And 
not to be too complicated about it, but if the problem is an absence of power, the answer is to build power. And, and <laughs> in, in a democracy, there, there's, you know, the way, the, the, I mean, obviously, you, if you're fantastically wealthy, you can buy power. If you control armies or police forces, you have a certain type of power. But in a democracy, the type of power that's accessible to everyday families and workers and citizens is the power of collective action. And if Congress and the courts have largely made it impossible for workers to exercise the kind of collective action power that they exercised in the 30s and 40s and 50s through unions, it's really up to us in this moment to not sort of weep for what was lost, but to rather imagine what form of an organization that the government can't stop us from joining, right? that does not rely on permission from our coworkers or our employers or our government, could we build? that would have sufficient scale and power to really reverse the 40-year wage collapse that American families are experiencing. Yeah. Somebody should do that, David. Yeah, so somebody <laughs> should do that. That sounds like a good idea. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So it was great to hear David talk a little bit about his experience building up organizations to support and advocate for workers and to listen to both of you talk about the collaborations that you've done. In fact, I've gotten to be a part of that as well. And to really hear about what we need to do to rebuild uh, the working class and the middle class in the United States. Yeah. And and from that, we're going to transition to a conversation with the labor economist, uh, Larry Michelle, who will give us, I think, a clearer and deeper perspective on precisely what went wrong with respect to policy. What were the choices we made uh, in our economy, uh, in our economic policy, rather, uh, that led to the decline of wages and worker power? Um, and there were a ton of them. <laughs> we, did a lot of we did a lot of stuff. Um, that benefited the few and disadvantaged the many. And uh, Larry, nobody knows more me? about that than Larry I can Michelle. hear you, Nick. Good to talk with you. Nice to talk to you, buddy. How's retirement? I'm not retired. I'm work full time. I'm earning a, I'm earning a paycheck, although it's less than um, what I used to earn, but that's fine. It's more fun. A lot more fun. Uh, Larry and I worked together for years and years. Have we won yet? <laughs> Uh, we're, we are getting there. We're winning in some ways. And then on the other hand, the national picture is quite grim. But uh, you've been at this uh, for 20 years uh, longer than I have. You've been working on the uh, challenge that we call more broadly wage suppression. Uh, can you tell us what brought you to that work, Larry? You know, right out of college, I understood that um, there was an imbalance of power between uh, workers and managers and the rich and that that was something I wanted to do something about. I did two things. One, I uh, trained to become a PhD economist with a, especially in the study of, of wages uh, and unions. And then I did spend around 10 years as a trade union economist doing bargaining, organi- organizing, and, and policy work. Uh, I wrote my first book on wage stagnation in 1986 called The Polarization of America. And I've been uh, working at EPI since 1987, and we put out the state of working America every other year since 1988 up until 2012, where we documented ad nauseum all the degradation of the job quality and inequalities and wage stagnation. Can you zoom out and talk about the dimensions of wage suppression over the last 40 years? 
Well, people have referred to the phenomena as wage stagnation, meaning that wages have been growing very slowly or not at all in inflation-adjusted terms for, for many years. This started in the 1970s. Nowadays, I think it is appropriate to call this wage suppression. Wage stagnation sounds like it's something that just happened. Wage suppression reflects the fact that it happened because that's what the rich and powerful wanted to happen, because it happened because of policy choices, either things they didn't do, like raise the minimum wage, or things that they did do to undercut the ability of people to earn a decent living. So we basically had wage stagnation um, all throughout the 70s and the 80s and the 90s up until the mid-90s, where it actually did grow pretty quickly in the period of low unemployment. And then back in the 2000s, where after you know a couple of recessions and wages were stagnant again, except for the last three or four years, uh, wages have been have picked up. So for most of the 40, last 40 years, wages have not really uh, grown so much, and we, and we know why. It's because we kept unemployment uh, way too high for way too long. We weakened labor standards, like the issues that you work on, Nick, the uh, overtime, minimum wage. Uh, we saw the attack uh, on unions. We saw uh, a particular form of globalization. And we saw the expansion of a financial sector and the escalation of executive pay, which helped drain a lot of the money from everyone else uh, up to the top 1%. So let me just describe this a little bit to show you how extreme it is. So between 1979 and 2017, the top 0.1%, that's the top 1,000th, saw their annual wages grow by 343%. This is inflation-adjusted terms. That's 8% a year. Pretty remarkable. And the top 1% did 157%. So that's around 4% a year if you're in the top 1%. Meanwhile, the bottom 90% had their annual wages grow by about 22%, mostly in the late 1990s, mostly in the last few years. The actual 50th percentile worker, the per worker right in the middle, had wages rise 0.3% a year. So that's almost nothing. Typical male worker saw no growth in wages over this entire period. You know, this is ongoing. It's not an accident that the top got a lot of wage growth while everyone else got less. If there hadn't been this massive redistribution of wages up the ladder to the top 1%, then the wage growth for the bottom 90% would have grown twice as fast. So redistribution upwards really mattered. So Larry, one of the things you were mentioning was this massive redistribution. And so over that same period, what was happening to worker power then? If you were talking about this not being an accident, it being suppression as opposed to being stagnation, what are some of the things that were going on that meant workers had less say at the table? Great question. So one of the biggest items was that we kept unemployment much higher in the 80s and, and early 90s, and then back in the early 2000s, that, you know, much above full employment. And when you have high unemployment, then middle-wage and low-wage workers are at a disadvantage because employers can find anyone they want uh, with whatever they really feel like paying. So that's a broad environmental thing, but it really, really is one of the most powerful uh, ways of suppressing uh, wages. And it's not an accident because that was what the Federal Reserve Board did in terms of how it set interest rates and monetary policy 
uh, it reflected a um, not really pursuing full employment with government budget policies and, and a, a not, not helpful trade policies, which uh, zapped our, uh, our incomes. So that's one thing. So, Larry, I just wanted to dial into that for just a second, because it's a really interesting thing to have this Federal Reserve Board in the 1980s really seeming not to be working on our behalf broadly, to have high unemployment and then not having a real impact on workers. Has that significantly changed over the decades? Was that on purpose? Well, the, um, you know, the people who own bonds, people who own things are very uh, antagonistic to inflation. And so they really want monetary policy to keep control of inflation, even if it means higher unemployment and very little wage growth for workers. And that policy was the formal policy of the Federal Reserve Board, you know, in the uh, 1980s and for, for much of the 1990s. Uh, and that did help really suppress wages. Now, fortunately, uh, that did change somewhat uh, over the last 10 years, and we had a Federal Reserve Board pretty dedicated to getting unemployment uh, as low as it can. Sometimes, you know, they may have wavered a little bit on that. But, you know, I think one of the reasons that we have very low unemployment today is that the Federal Reserve Board did not kill the recovery, although sometimes they took a couple of shots at it. Yeah, but there were a lot of policy changes or emissions that contributed to wage stagnation uh, and wage suppression, uh, among them that the fact that we basically didn't move the minimum wage at all in concert with increases in productivity growth. Absolutely. And we've hardly, we really haven't recovered from the 1980s where neither uh, Ronald Reagan nor George H.W. Bush uh, allow a, a minimum wage increase. Uh, and so when you have high inflation, as we had back then, the value of the minimum wage fell to basically no, no value by the late 1980s. And it really drove down wages. And we can see whose wages really got hurt. It was low-wage women. They were the ones who were most uh, dependent upon the minimum wage to support their wages. And so we saw an enormous growth of a wage gap between low-wage women and middle-wage women. Um, uh, since then, we've had moderate increases in, in the minimum wage, but as you know, uh, quite inadequate. So the, the minimum wage um, in 2018 uh, at the federal, uh, the federal minimum wage uh, in states where they haven't exceeded that, but the federal minimum wage is now uh, about 29% below its value in 1968 which is when the minimum wage was at its peak. That's 50 years ago. Since that time, productivity has more than doubled. Now, productivity is the output of goods and services per hour work. It's what provides the potential for wage and income increases. So the minimum wage, if it had grown with productivity, would be over $20 right now. Uh, and it's amazing that it's so low because the productivity is up and the education levels of the people mm -hmm. in the bottom are far better than they were back then. What, one way of, of seeing how low it is is that it will take a pretty bold policy of getting $15 minimum wage in 2024 to really start turning things around. But even doing that, that only allows the minimum wage in 2024 to be about 30% above 1968 levels. So that's like, 
you know, 56, 57 years and a 29% increase is not really all that great. And, and, and doing that will directly raise the wages of 40 million workers or 27% of the workforce. So that just shows you how low the wages are that a minimum wage is, I think, a very moderate value would raise up almost 30% of the workforce. It would have an even bigger effect if we didn't have around eight states that already have set laws to get people to $15, the biggest ones being, you know, your state in Washington, California, uh, New York, et cetera. So, uh, you know, it's a huge thing. There's uh, billions of dollars that have been drained from low-wage workers because of the failure to raise the minimum wage. It's the single easiest thing to do to um, try to spark some wage growth. And this didn't just happen to low-wage workers, but what happened with the middle class during this period? Good question. Well, I mean, wages for a middle-class worker is is what, as well as low-wage workers, is what we describe when we talk about wage suppression. Uh, But it's also been true that uh, in the early uh, 1990s, mid-1990s, wage suppression, stagnation really started going to the white-collar, college-educated workers. And in the 2000s, the wages of a college grad, someone with a four-year degree, did not grow at all in between around 2002 and uh, until the last few years. And if you look at the bottom 70 to 80 percent of college grads, their wages are really no higher uh, now than what they were in 2000. So essentially, they're, you know, it's first they came for the blue-collar workers, then they came for the white-collar workers, and they were very successful. Management has been very successful in, in maintaining, um, keep the wages down of their, of their white-collar workforce. Yeah, so this brings us to my favorite labor protection, the overtime threshold. Uh, Larry, you and I have worked together on this for a long time, the overtime threshold being essentially to the middle class with the minimum wage is to low-wage work. And as you know, at the peak of the middle class, the overtime threshold applied to uh, 63% of salaried workers today, and it's now down to, I think, just under 7%, $23,600. And that has been another huge uh, contributor to the stagnation of wages, in particular for middle-class salary workers. Absolutely. I I like to think of it in terms of, um, you know, a manager at a dollar store, Dunkin' Donuts or whatever, earns, you know, $35,000, tends to oversee a, a cashier for a part of their time. They could end up spending a lot of their time uh, unloading trucks, stocking shelves, being at the cash register themselves. But when they work more than 40 hours, they get no additional money. That's what this means. It's not that they don't get the time and a half. They don't even get time. They get zero. The 41st hour is free. So it's not surprising that managers love to be able to uh, make these people not eligible for overtime. And that's what our legal standards have essentially allowed. Now, of course, uh, President Obama tried to raise that and, and did, but between the courts and the Trump administration, uh, that's been taken away. Yes, and we should argue that what has been done is not high enough, and that when you look at the threshold in the 1960s and the number of folks it covered, what we were talking about in 2016 wasn't adequate, that we should have gone higher. Well, President Obama should 
have listened better to Nick Hanauer. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> so whenever I talk to folks about wages and stuff like that, that conversation always goes to the minimum wage, which is, you know, A, the indispensable labor protection for working people, but also it's the simplest thing to understand. But folks often struggle to understand what the other dimensions of wage suppression have been. And, uh, the, and, and they, it's hard to explain the things that you can do to help people who are not at the bottom of the wage scale. So, so to, for, to dimensionalize this, one of the things I love to talk to people about are non-compete agreements. Uh, and those operate up and down the wage scale. So it's not surprising for people to learn that, like if you work for a big software company or a senior developer, that they'll make you sign a non-compete so you can't basically ever leave the company and go use your skills someplace else. It's, this seems somewhat defensible and tolerable, but one of the most pernicious things that's happened in the economy is that even places like Jimmy John's, a sandwich shop, is forcing low-wage workers to sign non-compete agreements that make it impossible for them to go make sandwiches elsewhere. Uh, franchise agreements uh, 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 up until recently had non-poach agreements. So let's say you were a really good employer employee at a Burger King. Well, it, the franchise agreement precluded another Burger King from hiring you, for instance, as an assistant manager at a higher wage. So all of these things, these are little things that sort of are in the background, but they serve to hold wages down and profits high. So, you know, in my opinion, you know, one great antidote to a lot of wage suppression would be to make all non-competes illegal. There's no earthly reason why you should have to, why every, any employee should have to sign a non-compete. All it really is is a license for um, corporations to consolidate earnings and power. Uh, so you could easily envision a world in which, uh, you you know, you couldn't force people to sign non-competes. And in, in that world, you know, workers across the board would have more money and corporate profits would be slightly lower. Well, if you believe in them, that the market should work for workers and not just managers, you know, even in places, though, in California where they don't have any legal sanction, they're not, they can't be enforced, companies still make people sign these agreements and people still abide by them because they don't have faith that uh, you know lawyers won't come after them well let me give it in the, a, a, a picture of how I view uh, an individual worker's situation and how their wages are suppressed so if you're on the job and you don't think you're getting a good deal you know what can you do well you could try to change things on the job through a union but that's much harder you could rely on uh, government standards to make sure that you're being treated well, a high minimum wage, overtime protection, safety and health, but those have been degraded because they've been lowered and they're not enforced. What if, you, what if you're subjected to sexual harassment or discrimination or racial discrimination? Can you take your employer to court to try to get something? Well, those rights have been weakened by the pervasiveness of what's called these forced arbitration agreements, which make people go to a private arbitration rather than the court. And for the most part, this allows class action. So let's say you want to leave. Well, you can only leave if you can, if there's not high unemployment and you can go to a better job and you're not subject to these anti-poaching agreements and you're not subject to uh, the, the non-competes. 
So what is really going on is that um, the, everyone's situation is such that their options, their better options are ruled out and people are stuck having, because people have to eat. People don't have many assets. You know, they, they can only, only last a little bit if they have any kind of emergency. So they, they can't just quit uh, and wait around for a while. They need another job. So in that situation, you can see how people have to accept what the employers are offering. And that's, and that's where we are. Larry, we have to hope that there's something we can do, right? That there's another way. That even though it's so hard on people right now, it doesn't have to be the way it is. So what are you thinking in light of the degradation over the last 40 years for people's wages? What do we do next? Well, I think the hallmark has to be that we need policymakers and politicians to identify that making a getting robust wage growth is the top priority for economic policy. I mean, setting aside climate change, which may be on a different order, but economic policy has to be organized around what we really want is to raise the living standards of the vast working class, low-wage workers, middle-wage workers, and, and white and white-collar workers, and their wages should grow. And we do that by prioritizing low unemployment. We do that by uh, having better labor standards, everything from the overtime, everything from the minimum wage, uh, preventing things that draw people back, like the non-competes and the anti-poaching. We need to make it possible that everybody, when they sign and when they come to work, they actually understand the agreement. You know, when you get a mortgage, you get this big stack of things you have to sign. When a worker gets a job, they are not, they don't even really know what their hourly wage rate is. Are they eligible for overtime? Uh, what kind of money is being deducted by their paychecks? We don't have transparency in employment. You know, we, we need to, um, you know, not have guest worker visas, which undercut tech workers and other workers. We, we, we do that for landscapers. We do it for people in hotels, you know, like Trump's Mar-a-Lago. You know, there's so many different things that we need to do. Uh, one more, I want one more ask is, you know, we have undocumented workers in this country. There's around 5% of the workforce. If you can be exploited in this country, you will be exploited. And undocumented workers, we need to give them full legal rights, right? And that'll help not only them, but it'll help the workers um, that they work with in the same industries. And Liz, I, I shouldn't, we should not avoid the, the topic of rebuilding collective bargaining. I mean, the biggest single factor that undercut the wages, at least of middle class men, was the attack on unions. And uh, I don't think we'll ever get robust wage growth in the middle unless we reestablish a collective bargaining system. I would also say I don't think we're going to have a vibrant democracy unless we do that. So I want to put that on the table, too. Uh, yes, I, I would completely agree. Uh, this has been a tough 40 years for the American middle class and working people. But I do see glimmers of hope. Certainly the majority of candidates running for president on the Democratic side in some way, shape or form acknowledge this problem. And the policy agendas of the majority of them are far more ambitious than anything I've seen in my lifetime. And we have a bunch of younger voices within the party and within Congress that are calling into question you know, the basic foundations of neoliberalism 
uh, and the last 40 years of wage suppression. And at least we're beginning to have a more robust conversation about solving this problem. And look, I was, I was proud to have Obama as my president, he, but you know, if we're being honest, he was part of the problem too. And, and the Obama folks could have been far more effective and ambitious. Well, we had 16 years of Democratic presidents in the 90s and 2000s, and the Council of Economic Advisors did a report on the issue of worker power and disempowerment in the last year of the, of the Obama administration. Nothing had been done in all the prior years. It just hasn't been a focus of, of Democrats. And listen, this is about people needing to organize politically uh, about being active and organized. Uh, I think we are seeing bold plans. I really wish there was more focus uh, from candidates on what I would consider wage issues. You know, you get even, I mean, it's, 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 it's an odd situation for me. I spent many years writing and talking about documenting wage suppression, wage stagnation. Starting around 2016, even the Republicans started acknowledging it. And in their presidential primary that year, it was, it was assumed that it's the case. It used to be the case. You still have a few dissenters in uh, conservative think tanks that d deny that this is a problem. But politically, no one denies this is a problem. So it really is about people acknowledging the problem and having to rally behind proposals that can make things better. And you know, one reason why it's a very hopeful thing to have this analysis that says it was policy decisions that suppressed wages uh, is that policy decisions are political. It means that things could be different. We may not have had productivity get to the vast majority in the last 40 years, but we certainly can do that for the next 40 years. You know, we have to find a way to engage the vast majority of citizens, the bottom 90% of citizens who have been left behind by the last 40 years of economic growth. And we have to find a way to gather their energy and interests and focus them on the political process and, and to drag, you know, and by the way, both political parties, both Republicans and Democrats, towards policies that benefit the majority of citizens. And I think that is the indispensable work left to be done to make the economy work better. And, you know, in my opinion, save the democracy, too. Yeah, now, I fully agree with that, Nick. And I, I think it, it, it resonates with people. I think uh, one of the worst things that have happened over these 40 years is I think that pe sometimes people's expectations of what is possible has been severely diminished. So I think, you know, I think victories and seeing some changes can help really light a fire. I mean, you can sort of see it with the teacher strikes, you know, it works in one place and everybody starts doing it. You know, I mean, anything that's out there that's going to work for people, they're going to sign up for. So uh, that was a super interesting conversation uh, with both Larry and David. And it, you know, I think it, it points to one, another one of the themes of the, you know, our Pitchfork Economics podcast, which is that this isn't just about the economy, it's about the country and our democracy. Because if you allow uh, the kind of an inequality that we have today, uh, and, and worse, uh, see it continue to rise in the way that it is, you can pretty much kiss your democracy goodbye. That's that, right. Yeah, yeah. That it is that that rising inequality shreds 
the reciprocity norms that social cohesion and democracy require. Right. And the stakes are really high. I yeah. mean, people are hurting. People are struggling to pay their bills, but our democracy is also hurting, too. Yeah. And there's a real... Uh, connection between the way people feel about their agency in our economy mm -hmm. and the way they feel about their agency in our democracy. And we That's have right. to protect and support both of those. And what I think was so inspiring about David is all of the work that he's doing to build organizations that drive worker power. Right. And of course, what's so great about Larry is he's been an observer and a documenter and a researcher on what has happened to the American worker for the last 40 years. And no one has a better insight into that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I, again, as I, you know, talk to these folks and reflect on it, uh, it just it's so obvious to me why people are so pissed off and why that anger is so valid yeah. right because they've yeah. just been so let down by leaders of both political by parties leaders of both parties that and that have, it is a choice yeah and that and that both political parties uh, with democrats and republicans at, at all sorts of moments had choices about whether they should support work, working families or rich people. And in virtually every case, uh, uh, leaders from both political parties took the wrong side. Right. And as a consequence, most people, you know, there's a reason why not that many people vote anymore. They feel like it's pointless. And if you just look at, the, if you just look at um, what voting has brought them over the last 40 years, you can't but conclude that they're mostly right, that neither yeah. political party has delivered the goods for working uh, for, for the typical American family, uh, certainly not on economics. Uh, I guess the, 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 uh, the thing to be optimistic about is certainly people on, in the Democratic Party are beginning to wake up to this. And as we speak, uh, there's a, well, is it, I don't know, 25 or 375 people, whatever it is, a lot More of people than you can count yeah, on both hands are running uh, for president now. Um, and almost all of them understand, uh, seem to understand the scale of the problem and are offering economic policy ideas that are way more ambitious and way more complete than anything we saw, uh, certainly from the Obama administration, uh, who was is captured by neoliberalism as the Bush administration that's in many right. ways. And so, uh, you know, so th I think that's really, um, I think that's a cause for optimism. And if I could just add, yeah. I think another cause for optimism is the work people are doing to organize themselves, to yes. push for those policies. So not only is the thinking changing of people who are seeking political power, but there's a recognition that without the force of people and yep. organization behind those politicians, yep. we're not going to get anything better. And so yep. that's what I'm inspired by in listening yep. to Larry and David talk yep. today. And I think there's, you know, there's, there's, there are signs of all, a lot of good stuff afoot. So hopefully we'll see some real progress over the next few years on a, on a bunch of these important issues. Uh, there's another big dimension of uh, the, the stagnation of wages and wage suppression, which is contracting and misclassification in gig workers, right? Yeah, and there are whole business models like our friends at Uber who have created lucrative you know, business models based on contract workers as opposed to traditional employment where people had access to wages and benefits. Yeah. So in the next episode of uh, Pitchfork Economics, we are going to explore what I like to call our nation's largest price-fixing scheme, the healthcare system. 
Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media. That's L-A-R-J Media and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. And one more, you should definitely follow Nick on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests and thanks to you for listening from our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Stephen Paolini, and Annie Fadley. See you next week.